that whichever of your knights is boldest of blood and wildest of hearts, step forth. Take up arms, and try with honor to land a blow against me. Whomsoever nicks me shall lay claim to this my arm. Its glory and riches shall be thine. But... Thy champ must bind himself to this. Should he land a blow, then one year and yuletide hence, he must seek me out yonder, to the green chapel, six nights to the north. He shall find me there and bend a knee and let me strike him in return, be it a scratch on the check or a cut in the throat. I will return what was given to me, and then in trust and friendship we shall part. Who then? Who is willing to engage with me? This is Snails and Oysters. Hello and welcome to Snails and Oysters, the bi-weekly, bi-coastal, bi-sexual movie podcast. As always, I'm Nat Roberts. And I'm Allie Rogers. And for the second episode in a row, we are opening the show with a birthday shout out to a member of my family. My older sibling, Benny, uh, had their birthday yesterday. They don't do much to celebrate their birthday, usually, um, but they do listen to the show. So, Benny... Uh, I love you very much, <laughs> and I hope you like the book I got you. I think you will. <laughs> um, Allie, do you have anything you want to say to my sibling you've never met? <laughs> uh, just, you know, happy birthday, and, uh, <laughs> you know? No, here, wait, let me start over. Uh, <laughs> um, happy birthday, Benny, and I feel like our podcast is just now like a, a Nat family birthday podcast. <laughs> it's, well, I don't have Facebook anymore. I have to I have to get the birthday wishes in somewhere. Oh, legit. It's bisexual birthdays, uh, bi-coastal. <laughs> Bi-earthdays. <laughs> so this week's episode is, as you could tell from the title you clicked on to listen to this episode, 2021's The Green Knight. This is also the episode we are releasing closest to the Oscars, because when we were scheduling things out, well, we thought, hey, we should talk about a bi movie that's going to get nominated for a whole ton of Oscars. And obviously Green Knight is bi, and obviously it's going to get so many Oscar nominations. Uh, So let's talk about that. And then we recorded it the week the nominations came out. And of course, they they robbed our boy. They did. They they I I literally have been tuning out ever since. I don't know anything else about what's going on. I'm just so aggrieved. Yeah. Because it didn't get nominated for anything, did it? Anything. Yeah. That's not costume design, not cinematography, not best actor for dev. Yeah. I mean, as you'll soon see from our conversation, we are huge fans of this movie. And I think Absolutely. there's so much to appreciate from like Dev Patel's acting to the cinematography to the story. Alicia Vikander's double performance. Yes. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. So I just am like, I'm basically canceling the Oscars. Just me by not paying attention. <laughs> this, this is the worst thing the Oscars have ever done. Well, no, definitely not. But <laughs> definitely not. It's dead to me. The, yeah. The only news I've seen about the Oscars since is that Amy Schumer wanted to have 
Zelensky. Oh like, yeah, and I just Ukrainian like, President Zelensky on. I understand how she thought that would just be a really good idea, but I'm like, it's a bad. <laughs> this guy is I, I really don't busy. honestly. I don't. His country's being invaded. He has more important things to do. And also, also, it's not like the the Russian invasion of Ukraine is going to get more attention put on it by famously popular telecast the Oscars. I think she was like I'm I'm going to use my platform to spotlight this this conflict but I think it's like it actually is getting a lot of support and he's very yeah. busy dealing with yeah. actual death and actual war. Yeah. And also he's a head of state. He is not a celebrity. He is a morally complex figure. Yeah, uh, he doesn't need to go to the Oscars. Exactly. Solidarity with Ukraine, not with a particular politician. But he's a pretty banging politician right now. He's pop I let's not get into the <laughs> I love Nat's Nat's the only guy I know who's like I again well, full solidarity with Ukraine. Fuck Putin's invasion. Fuck the Russian states. I, I just don't think that we need to turn Zelensky into the next RBG because sure. that was also fucked up where it's like, oh, they, totally. they're politicians. They have good points and bad points. And I think the cult of celebrity that we tend to form yeah. around them is really creepy and yes. unhelpful. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's, I feel the need to clarify that because left Twitter is such a weird place. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's really bad right now. Don't go there. But speaking of left Twitter, <laughs> today we're joined by, what is this, our third, our fourth guest? Third, third guest to air. I think our third guest to yes. air, yeah. Uh, my friend from Lefty Twitter, uh, Peter, also known as Gorbachev Simp. So we're very excited to talk to him about this movie, and we're very excited to talk about this movie in general. So without further ado, let's do it. Yeah. How did awesome. that feel? <laughs> that felt good. Just cut some yeah. of the Ukraine yeah, stuff Yeah, I'll down. cut down on the Ukraine stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> The Green Knight is a 2021 fantasy film written and directed by David Lowry, adapted from the original 14th century chivalric romance, <laughs> Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, one of the classics of the Arthurian genre. <laughs> uh, the movie stars Dev Patel as not yet Sir, but definitely Gawain, the wastrel <laughs> nephew of King Arthur and son of Morgan Le Fay, a witch, I believe. Yes, indeed. Alicia Vikander co-stars in... Dual roles as Essel, Gowan's girlfriend slash, you know, favorite sex worker, and the mysterious capital L lady that he encounters on his adventure. Said adventure begins when Gawain attends a Christmas feast held at the court of Camelot. I don't know what it is, but like talking about Camelot makes me want to talk like this. I know. I can tell you're like... I'm waxing poetic. It's a shame that this is an audio medium because our listeners can't see the hand gestures I'm using. But the festivities at the court are interrupted by the arrival of the titular Green Knight, who's a sort of half man half tree giant wood person with an axe who is actually secretly summoned by Morgan Le Fay The Green Knight challenges any knight to land a blow on him with the agreement that he will return the blow in one year's time Gawain rashly agrees to the challenge and beheads the Green Knight Oh, only for the knight to pick up his own head and ride out of town. Wouldn't it's, you know it? Wouldn't you know it? Classic, classic. One of the classic blunders. Yeah. 
After a year of enjoying sort of celebrity status after this episode, Gawain is pressured to seek out the Green Knight and complete the game by both Arthur and Morgan. So Gawain sets out alone to find the Green Chapel. Along the road, Gawain is robbed by scavengers, chastised by a ghost, befriends a fox, takes some mushrooms, and ends up collapsing at the door of a castle. This castle is the setting for the longest chapter in Gawain's adventure as he's caught up in yet another game. This time, it's a sort of psychosexual love triangle between him and the castle's unnamed lord and lady, played by Joel Edgerton and Alicia Vikander, respectively. The game culminates in two sexual encounters, one between Gawain and the Lord and one between him and the lady, after which he flees to the Green (laughs) Chapel bearing a magical girdle that the lady alleges will protect him from all harm. At the Green Chapel, Gawain returns the Green Knight's axe and tries to fulfill his end of the game. But as the Green Knight prepares to behead him, Gawain is just overtaken by fear and flees, returning to Camelot to become Arthur's heir. We see several decades pass in montage, uh, including his ascent to the throne, rapidly declining popularity, his estrangement from Essel after the birth of their son, and that son's death in battle. The montage ends with open riots against Gawain's sovereignty. During a siege of his castle, he finally removes the magical protective girdle and his head falls off, revealing that this entire sequence since he left the chapel has been a dream or a vision. Back in the Green Chapel, Gawain removes the protective girdle and agrees to die. The Green Knight tenderly praises his courage, then says, now, off with your head, before the film abruptly ends. While it was delayed several times by the COVID pandemic, Lowry extensively recut The Green Knight, creating a film that was released to modest box office success, rave critical reviews, but no Oscar nominations. I feel like the Green Knight needs to avenge it. (laughs) (laughs) The Green Knight's just gonna show up at the ceremony with his axe. So today we are thrilled to be joined by a good friend of mine here in Los Angeles, Peter. Uh, Peter is also a filmmaker, also an anarchist, also has long curly brown hair. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Likewise, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how we balance this out to to white male anarchist bisexual. <laughs> I wanted to sort of like delineate our differences when it comes to theory. Uh, on my end, I prefer uh, more of the like Daniel Garin and uh, Johannes Ferrofakis, whereas you tend towards. Uh, I am I am 100% David Graeber. Graeber and Emma Goldman. And Emma Goldman. Fucking love Emma Goldman. Obviously, for anyone who isn't in anarchist circles, that made total sense and was super helpful. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> but now, Peter, normally what happens when we have a guest on is I'll send them the list of potential episodes that we have prepared that we check on you know, to see what we want to do next. I'll just send them that list so that they can draw inspiration, see something that maybe they didn't never thought of as bisexual. With you, it was a bit different because as soon as I made the ask, you said, well, are you two going to do an episode on The Green Knight? You just immediately knew what you wanted to talk about. So do you want to talk a little bit about your experience first seeing this movie, your relationship with this movie, and and why you wanted to talk about it? Yeah, sure. Um, 
Yeah, I made a decisive decision. I want to do Green Knight. Because <laughs> uh, it is a bisexual movie. It's a coming-of-age movie, I think. Uh, and we will dig into that. Oh, absolutely. When I saw it, it was probably one of the first two or three movies I saw in a theater since the pandemic started. Same. Uh, yeah, just a small theater, the the one in my neighborhood. I went down and I was like, I want to see a movie. I'm going to see Green Knight. It's time. Because I think at that moment, uh, it wasn't anywhere close to opening weekend. Um, so the hype had died down a little bit so that I can enjoy it uh, on my own without like uh, just uh, attaching myself to the, uh, you know, the wave of uh, popular takes and discourse. Yeah, without feeling like Twitter was sitting next to you talking during the movie. Mm. And that's a very important point is I did not have as good an experience rewatching it at home because of the discipline the theater puts on you to turn your phone off and put it mm-hmm. in your pocket mm. and do not take it out. Yes. And yeah. sit here and take in this whole experience, hopefully with other people who are uh, sharing the experience with you, whether they're strangers or not. That that makes a lot of sense. This is the sort of movie that really demands your focus, demands your attention, and it is easy to drift off if you're at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually funny. I tried watching the movie once this week And I was like in a really frazzled state of mind and I got five minutes in and I was like, I feel like A24 sprinkled extra A24 on this movie (laughs) and I can't like I actually can't do it right now. And so I had to pause and then I returned to it the next night. And my feeling afterwards was like, I really want to see this movie if it comes to like a theater near me. There's like a couple movie theaters in Brooklyn that do, you know, screenings of movies that have already come out. And I don't know, I just really felt like there's so much mystery and there's so, there's so much to rewatch and reinterpret. And also it's just really stunning and beautiful. And I would really love to see it on a big screen. Absolutely. I, I saw it in theaters when it did finally come out. I had been actually anticipating it for the many years that it was delayed due to COVID, I was just desperate to see it because I, I, I don't know about you two. I was a big Arthurian romance fan when I was a kid. I read Le Mort d'Arthur. I read John Steinbeck's Acts of King Arthur and His Noble Knights. I, I believe I read the original Green Knight back then too. I read several collections of Arthurian poetry, including like Lady of Shalott and things like that. So to see a sort of contemporary Arthurian fantasy film starring Dev Patel, who I'm sure I've said on this podcast before is my biggest celebrity crush. It it seemed like a movie designed for me. And so I was, I had really high expectations going into the theater and I have to say this movie met them all. It was exactly the movie I wanted it to be, including that it didn't feel like everything was out in the open. Like it still felt like there was a lot to be uncovered on further rewatches. Yeah. I'm really not that familiar at all with, Arthurian legends. But I actually do think I read this original poem in a class in college that actually was really traumatic because the professor was really mean to me. Oh, no. Yeah, it was. It's okay. It was a class on queerness in medieval literature. Um, And so I'm actually pretty sure we did an entire class on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I'm not familiar with Arthurian legends, but I've been slowly working my way through a book of Native American myths Mm. and this book called The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell, just about... Oh, yeah. Mm. Campbell's a classic. He's so great. Yeah, I've really been doing it slowly, but I really... 
I think I was just having done all this other reading on like myths and just the ways that myths can be so illogical and fanciful and really don't always give you clear answers or clear plot points, you know? Like I feel like a lot of the way we watch shows right now is trying to add up little details into like a totally coherent plot, if that makes sense, you know? It definitely does. I like that you mentioned um, Richard Campbell, is that right? Uh, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell. Um, because I think I had a take on this film, yeah. which Nat will appreciate the, the starting point, which is, <laughs> you know, the way that most screenwriters learn how to write screenplays is you mm-hmm. are forced to buy a copy of Robert McKee's story. <laughs> I have a, I have avoided it so far, but I've definitely <laughs> absorbed a lot of that book through osmosis. Yeah, I use my copy as a doorstop. Um, <laughs> it's certainly heavy enough. It is. Um, But in the book, there's there's at least a small section where uh, McKee describes how in order for screenwriters and filmmakers and storytellers to be subversive, they first need to learn how to tell a conventional story. Mm. So you don't get to break the rules until you can follow them. Sure. And I think that in relation to uh, Joseph Campbell and, you know, the hero's journey and all the various beats that fall into that, I think that the Green Knight and uh, the creators behind it, the, the filmmakers, have learned how to tell a conventional hero's journey story beforehand and now can tell one while executing it. And I think the, the value in orienting the, uh, the structure of this film to the hero's journey is, is the value of like making it feel like a medieval movie, like, like a fable on its own. Mm. I I fully agree. And I think it's interesting the way that this film blends sort of the past hundred years of filmmaking knowledge and history, a lot of which derived from Joseph Campbell's work. It sort of took that knowledge and then reintegrated it into the medieval form so that the film feels simultaneously very contemporary, but also very period specific. It feels like 14th century England in a really interesting way, because I think Campbell's monomyth or hero's journey, he derived from studying the ancient mythologies of various cultures Mm -hmm. and then coalesced into a single form, which then was heavily influential on Star Wars in particular. But the the epic film, the adventure film, the action film all sort of take their cues from that monomyth. Hmm. But the way Lowry sort of amalgamated the two allows this to be both a faithful adaptation of the 14th century poem and a very contemporary coming of age story as Peter referred to. So it's, it's this weird sort of uh, cognitive, not cognitive dissonance, but almost like a cognitive alignment where you're simultaneously watching a story about a typical protagonist who needs to grow up and this mythical hero who is fated to go on a journey, you know, by mm-hmm. forces beyond his comprehension. Totally. It's pretty good. It's a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that there's a point that we could dive into there of... Yeah, let's let's go. How, how our protagonist starts this film is that he is an irresponsible young man. Right. We start the film, he wakes up hungover in a brothel having a, a bucket of water thrown over him and he has to get to a formal event right. immediately because he, he shouldn't have been there. It gives a great sense of momentum to that first sequence too. Absolutely. And also, how, how many how many scenes in this film is, is Dev Patel sopping wet? Just soaking wet. Yeah. Just sweat or water. I love it. But oh, I, 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 empath- I empathize with... Slop him up. <laughs> 
down boy. <laughs> I empathize with this character as portrayed in the film very much because I feel like I'm very much in a similar place in my life where I am sort of waking up after a, a night of partying, horrible hangover, uh, somewhere to be, responsibilities, but also in the fact that I haven't lived enough life to really tell a story to other people. And, you know, older generations still seem to have not given me the opportunities to yeah. to have created something I can be proud of to show to the world. Uh, I feel like I'm still in that part of my life where uh, no one's given me an opportunity yet. But I feel like I'm on the on the precipice of it. How do you two feel? Do you feel similarly? Yeah, it's funny. I totally see that in his character, but I also couldn't help but feel like really root for him as he was in the beginning of the movie. I couldn't help but feel like a lot of this film is just about the idea of trying to achieve this kind of silly version of masculinity that's so much about, you know, meeting your destiny and going on this journey and, and defeating this night and like just how kind of silly it is in a way. And so I totally do agree with like that reading, but I also couldn't help but feel like he was a bit of a hero himself in the beginning. The way that like a slacker can feel heroic today because yeah. you're like, he's like rebelling against capitalism and the system. <laughs> yeah, it's like he hasn't really done anything. He hasn't really like, he kind of just goes to the brothel and gets drunk. And I was kind of like, well, that's kind of awesome. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah, to be honest. I, th I think that that read is definitely in the film, too. Like, I think Essel, one of Alicia Vikander's characters, said, why do you have to be great? Isn't goodness enough? Yeah, I loved that line. I honestly agree with both of you simultaneously. I think yeah. both readings are present in the film. And that's partly what makes the movie so interesting is that it's hard to know where the filmmaker really lands. Totally. Peter, I think, really hit the nail on the head with something you said, because I was reading an interview with David Lowry, the writer-director, and he talked about how in the original poem, Gar Garwin Gawain 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 is already a knight and is already established and is already a hero. And so he made the conscious decision to demote him, basically. He, hmm. I actually have a quote here. He said, you need for a story like this for a character who we've reinvented as somewhat of a cad and to have a naivete to him an exuberance to him that counteracts the more negative qualities so that we can become invested in his journey and want to see him succeed. Mm. And I think that really speaks to that integration I, I was talking about earlier, where I think this movie achieves something really special by making that quest seem both ridiculous on the one hand, but also really meaningful on the other, because by the end, you see the cost of not facing his death. You know, we have that beautiful extended fantasy sequence where Gawain sees what will happen to him if he isn't able to face this darker side of his life. And it's, he'll live as a coward. He'll live as sort of a snake. He'll continue to, his worst qualities will take over. I have, I have a, what I think is a controversial alternate reading of that scene, but we can totally leave it for later if we want to talk about that. No, please. Well, I'll, I'll just finish and say, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I think what's marvelous about this movie is that it sort of cuts through the masculine bullshit and gets to what honor might have originally been about, which is the ability to make difficult decisions mm -hmm. and face difficult choices, mm -hmm. in particular, your own death, which, you know, we're all going to face eventually, whether we like it or not, yeah. not to get too dark <laughs> in the first 15 minutes of the show. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Friday night calming thoughts from that. <laughs> yeah, and on on the point of starting the character in a demoted position, uh, I love that choice by Lowry. I actually uh, wrote down a little quote from the start of the film. I think it might be where where he wakes up after uh, Ethel's thrown a bucket of water on him. Someone asks, "Are you a knight yet?" And he says, "Not yet." Mm. And then there's a there's a pause in there. He says, "Not yet. I'm not ready yet." Yeah. Right. And that's just it gets me right in the heart every time. Yeah. I th- I I actually I wrote that down this time too because it's mirrored beautifully at the end, which is that Gawain's last line is, "Now I'm ready." Mm. When oh. he's in the Green Chapel with the Green Knight, he's <laughs> taken off this belt that's supposed to protect him, yeah. and he says, "Now I'm ready," yeah. and that's the last thing he has to say. And so it really clarifies the arc that the character has gone on, where at the beginning he isn't ready to face his death, and at the end he is. Whether or not, I think Lowry actually said, whether or not he gets beheaded five seconds after the scene ends or not, it's a happy ending. Totally. Oh, I want to say really quick, I think think a part of this movie that is so funny to me is that his mom conjured this green knight. Yes. And what I kind of love about that, I just love the idea that like this was essentially a scavenger hunt that his mom sent him on <laughs> because she was like, you need to grow up. And I'm just kind of like, I think we should do that more in life. Like, I think if we notice a friend or someone might need a little push in a certain direction, you know, we're just like invent a mythic quest for them to fulfill. <laughs> <laughs> I really loved that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that really speaks to two points that I'd love to drill into if y'all are down. Mm-hmm. One being gender roles and the other being this film's relationship to the Arthurian canon. Mm-hmm. Since I'm I'm the nerd in the room, I'll yeah. clarify. So in this film, it's not specified who Gawain's mother is. Mm-hmm. It's implied that she's Morgan Le Fay in this interpretation, yeah. which is part of the romantic cycles. Um, that's the thing. There's no real canon when it comes to Arthurian myth. There's just a lot of conflicting reports. Mm. In other versions of the story, Gawain is the son of Morgoz, who is Morgan Le Fay's sister, mm. but who is also a witch. In some versions of the story, Morgan and Morgoz are allies of Arthur. In others, later ones, they're usually antagonists as Christian influence uh, started to vilify the presence of pagan elements in the stories. So it, it's definitely a very, since there isn't a set canon to follow, any choice it has to be intentional. And so I think it's interesting that Lowry chose the interpretation where Morgan Le Fay, the powerful sorceress, is Gawain's mother and is a friend to the Arthurian court to Camelot, because that's not always the case. And in fact, I would say most people, most contemporary audiences don't expect that. Mm. I don't know that much about Arthurian legend. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry, that was a, that was a long tangent. <laughs> a, I apologize. No, no. I mean, I love the tangent. Like, I love knowing more about the context. But is your question more just like about gender roles in the film? Yeah, I think that's that's the more fruitful point of discussion. I guess uh, the nerd in me couldn't let an opportunity to talk about Arthurian canon slide. <laughs> well, what what I got out of what you had to say there uh, was sort of that the, the filmmakers needed to synthesize all the, uh, you know, uh, former, like, yes. branching off of, like, who this character is, mm. who was uh, Gawain's mother. And that's important for creators and filmmakers to do. It, like, another great example of this is um, uh, the uh, the woman scientist in the show Chernobyl. Mm. She's meant to represent uh, at least two dozen, if not more, you know, Soviet scientists who 
mm. made huge contributions in mitigating and resolving that disaster. That's interesting. I have I haven't watched that show, but that's because it is sort of about simplifying the functions of these characters so that instead of having three different witches of various moral alignments, right. this film really simplifies and synthesizes it into Morgan is the pagan element, Arthur is the Christian element, and they have this sort of tenuous coexistence. And I, I think that that is sort of a gendered distinction as well, given that they're t- the two most present authority figures in Gawain's life. Mm. One of the other choices I found really interesting in adapting this is that the question of Gawain's father is skipped over. You know, it, it, he's given various fathers in various texts, uh, whether it's King Lot or, you know, some other minor nobleman. But in this film, it's sort of sidestep. The question of who his father is a sidestep because he is a young man without a paternal presence in his life. That's part of his new characterization. And it's it's perfect because it allows Arthur to be sort of this sole patriarch, but positive, understanding, sort of King Solomon uh, figure right. in the story. He's sort of the ideal, but an aging ideal. Right. This is like a slightly tangential thought, but what I found interesting about Morgan Le Fay when I read a little bit more about the original legend is that at least in some versions of this story, it's kind of implied that she sent this green knight to essentially challenge Arthur's men to kind of be like, you guys kind of suck. You're not actually as courageous, as brave as you all say, because when you're faced with this you know, which one of you is going to stand up. And what I thought was interesting about what they did with her character is I definitely didn't feel that at all. I really felt like sending this knight was all about basically being like done with her son being this kind of caddish, you know, shirking (laughs) responsibilities. I'm not ready to be a knight. She's kind of like, you know, the equivalent of when you teach a kid how to swim by throwing them in a pool, Uh, you know, which I think is wrong, by the way. But but it's kind of interesting to me that her function really felt a little bit less as a witch. Like you definitely get the sense she's a powerful witch, but but it's really there to be the mother, to be like, Right. You're done. You're out of here. Like, be a knight. It's time. Yeah. It's sort of like, I've given you everything I can. Now, you know, it seems that you're only going to grow up if you're put through sort of a crucible. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think there's another function in there. Uh, And Nat hinted on it earlier that looking at masculinity and femininity often uh, in around these uh, spiritual um, uh, spaces and milieus, the masculine is always associated with the sun and day and light. Uh, the feminine is often, you know, relegated to uh, the moon and uh, nocturnal realms of, you know, mystery and magic. And I think this film does play into that. It tilts into that. And if we're we're driving at the idea of uh, Gawain's mother as a magical figure who puts a challenge on Gawain, mm. you know, you need something to go through to turn you into a full human being. The other side of that is that when the Green Knight comes into the, you know, the chamber with the round table, they're having their Christmas get together. There's a moment when Gawain, after he steps up, he's going to do it, but he needs a sword. Yeah. And everyone in the chamber is holding tight to their weapons because they want to defend themselves. And it's not until King Arthur gets up because he sees Gawain as a sort of a... A sun figure. Yeah. A sun figure. He offers him his own sword. Yeah. And this is 
this again plays into the sort of generational theme that I I sense from the film. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. That's absolutely right. Like if you're going to challenge a younger generation, you also have to give them the tools to overcome it. <laughs> absolutely. Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you think it would be that simple. <laughs> and I think what also like lends credence to that reading is doesn't Arthur say I would challenge you myself, but I'm yeah, my mind wants to, but my body resists. And that's when Gawain steps forward. Yeah. Also, I, I want to say about that scene, I <laughs> there's such humor to that scene yeah. because they make such a big deal out of this really dramatic, otherworldly reading of the challenge. And the challenge is so clear. Yeah. Try and land a blow on me so long as you're willing to have the same blow landed on you. Exactly. It's it's so clear. And the fact that Gowan then goes and beheads him, even though it's not brave, there's nothing courageous about that. It's not a real mm-hmm. fight. Mm-hmm. The Green Knight lays down his axe, offers his neck up. Right. And then he takes his head off. It's so childish. And it's just like I, I wrote down, read the terms of service. Like, this is why you read <laughs> the terms of service. Well, and also, it, yeah, it's so awkward. Like, there's a moment where Gawain so asks awkward. the Green Knight, what do you expect me to do? <laughs> Yes. But I, I think you're you're really hitting on one of my favorite changes from the poem, which is that in the poem, it's sort of a bravado thing where Gawain is like, yeah, I'll take this challenge. And then he beheads him thinking like, haha, beat you, you're dead. Yeah. And then the Green Knight picks up his head in sort of a twist. Whereas in this one, it's very much more, you know, it's so awkward when the Green Knight just lets him and encourages him to behead him. And he's like, I, I don't understand, but I'll do it because everyone's watching. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and a moment I noticed was that the king asked Gawain, he's like, you understand this game? I think. <laughs> because I think yeah. if, if, if Arthur was still of, of you know, able body to make this challenge himself, he wouldn't have beheaded the Green no. Knight. He knows how the game works. He's old enough. He has the... He has the wisdom. Yeah. Right. And even on the queen's face, I feel like there's this moment where she's like, oh, my God, this freaking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. I think that's that's really heightens the sort of coming of age Bildungsroman element of the story is that it's a very youthful mistake. Yeah. It's a very youthful mistake. And all of the old like the younger characters in the room applaud him. But Arthur and Guinevere, who are these sort of wiser figures, are like, oh, you really put your foot in it this time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so funny to me that this is the act that sets him off on his destiny and his journey because, and I, I'll just push again my reading of this film as kind of a indictment of chivalric masculinity because like, it is so goofy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and to me it's it's kind of a commentary on some of the ways that we try to achieve honor or any kind of acclaim, you know, can really be so silly, but yet we all because we all decide to invest meaning in it and the way that they all are like now you're going on this journey then it's like, yeah, I guess it means you're a knight. Yeah. <laughs> you're trying to be a knight, you know? I think that that really plays into the theme of games and game playing, both yeah. in the original poem and heightened in this film. Isn't it a game? Like, I think Gawain keeps asking, like, wasn't this just a game? Like, I don't understand why everybody, why suddenly the stakes have risen so much. Yeah, That also is illustrated in a later scene when... Uh, I want to I want to sort of reserve the manner for the second half of the show, sure. which we, we're, we're getting to. But for the moment, I j- I'll just say that when Gawain is speaking to the Duke, as played by Joel Edgerton, the Duke asks him, like, what he hopes to gain by facing the Green Knight. And Gawain says, honor. 
And the Duke says, are you asking me? Yeah. <laughs> like, he's so unsure of everything throughout the story. Like, that's really beautifully illustrated in the scene with St. Winifred, where he's like, tries to touch her. And she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm sorry, I don't know what I'm doing. And then he's yeah. like, what will you give me if I get your head? And she's like, why would you ask me that? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I, I had a thought in there, too, because yeah. while the, the bargain the game that Gawain makes with the with the Green Knight. It is funny. It is awkward. It is goofy. It is at the same time. To the characters in the scene, it is, this is a Faustian bargain they just watched take place. Absolutely. And this is very common with like ways that we interpret uh, old fables and myths about fey creatures, which the Green Knight clearly is. And if you like look, go into like the D&D side of it, you're like, okay, well, fey creatures are usually chaotic <laughs> neutral. They're just here to have fun. And it doesn't matter if that helps or hurts you. In fact, there's always conditions where if they help you, there is a second condition that you, they might have glossed over yeah. that is going to hurt you later. Like, here's here's a gift mm-hmm. and some fine print. Right. Here's a gift of celebrity. And the fine print is I'm going to behead you next year. Right. Before pivoting to the, the bisexual element here in the film, do we want to talk about the other trials that Gawain meets on the road? You know, now that he's on this journey, on this road to honor or to his death, there are sort of a few big episodes, like the middle of the story is like most Arthurian myths, very episodic. He's met with challenges that ask different things of him. So the first, I believe, is the scavenger in the woods as played by Barry Keogh. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Mm. I, I love that that scene is set up as after a battle because it's this whole field full of men who died for an idea of masculinity. Yeah. Like the, the point of the battle is never discussed. It's just thousands of men dead in the field. And the one who survived is a shiftless bastard. The other thing to notice about that field is that it is also completely deforested. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I also think. These are men who died basically as pawns, you know, as part of a larger game. I think that's part of what's so cool about the conversation of games throughout the whole film is that there's kind of the sense of it's just a game. But I think there's also this larger sense in which it's kind of like, well, everything is a bit of a game if you look at it like that, you know? Oh, you're getting into anarchist territory. (laughs) Oh, brother. Society is a a game that we each invent and choose to play every day. Yeah. (laughs) It's a, I think there's a line from a a great essay called your politics are boring as fuck, where it's like uh, liberation is a game played for infinite stakes. Mm, Love that. Now, Peter, I want to drill into something you said about the field that it's completely deforested. Because I do think that there's obviously in the Green Knight himself and throughout the film, nature is a very solid presence. And I know Lowry himself has described himself as an ecological filmmaker. I know ecology is very important to you, particularly the concept of social ecology as pioneered by Murray Bookchin. Do you want to talk a little bit about your ecological interpretation of this film? Yeah, absolutely. From from moment one, I knew this was uh, an ecological story. And I'm not sure how much exposure David Lowry's had to the school of thought that is social ecology. But a simple explainer of what social ecology is, is that it is a political philosophy for revolutionarily changing a world that is under, you know, ecological crisis, the climate crisis, among many. Mm-hmm. And at its basis, it has roots in uh, Marxism, anarchism, synthesized along with sciences about our natural world and the, you know, pushes and pulls therein. At its basis, it, it takes on the question of anthropomorphization. That uh, the mistake that older ideologies like Marxism, anarchism, liberalism, uh, further back you want to go, is that it was often taken 
for granted that, uh, you know, a child would treat nature as there's a, a person somewhere making these things happen. Someone decided to put a thunderstorm over your house to scare you. Mm-hmm. And that is to anthropomorphize nature, thinking that mm-hmm. someone is, you know, putting you under a, you know, a bad condition. You, you imagine outside your home, that's the element. Mm. Uh, you're subjected to the elements. And if you think that there's a being subjecting you to those elements, you take on an antagonistic stance towards that being, mm. right. uh, towards nature itself. And that's the mistake that uh, for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, human beings have made. Right. Going as far back as like, you know, the, the ancient mythologies of storm gods like Zeus and Thor, putting a human face, human name, human psychology onto natural forces. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the mistake that we make. We shouldn't be treating nature as a human being that is making us suffer out of spite. We should be treating it as a emotionless thing just going through processes that probably no one has control over. Mm. And our suffering under them is sort of a result of the form of organization our society takes up, whether we are a society with the intention of taking care of each other and mm. making sure everyone is safe. Right, right. And that points to many of the failures uh, capitalism has <laughs> brought to the world is that Absolutely. we do not live in a society <laughs> where we make sure that everyone is safe from the elements. Right. That's a privilege for, for people here. Mm. I think it also, this ecological thinking bumps into one of my favorite concepts from Shinto philosophy is the this sort of idea of uh, animism or or sort of all things are imbued with spirit, but that doesn't mean that they're human or anthropomorphized. You know, that a tree has a spirit that is a tree. And the the real sort of reading between the lines interpretation is the idea that everything deserves respect, mm. whether it's animate, inanimate, alive, unalive. Everything that exists ought to be recognized for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And that strikes on a theme that social ecology points to that we started in what's called first nature, where we were indistinguishable from the other animals and plants and uh, fungi. But at some point, we gained consciousness and separated ourselves from nature while not realizing that that's actually impossible to do because nature is what sustains our life. So that is what's called second nature, where you know human beings gained self-consciousness and built cities and thought of themselves as separate from nature and natural processes. We are not animals, we would say to ourselves. Sure. There is also a mistake to make there, too, that if you just try to go back to say that human beings are animals and equal with the plants, that might be a mistake to make as well. But ultimately, the conclusion that um, social ecology points to is that we should strive to reach third nature. Right. There might be another term for it, like uh, symbiosis, but that we should recognize those two movements that we had of, you know, indistinguishable from nature, making ourselves distinguishable from nature, and now we get to come back together with nature and try to reach a a balanced existence Mm -hmm. where we don't have to anthropomorphize animals, plants, and uh, natural processes, and we also don't need to dehumanize ourselves. Mm. We can see ourselves as as caretakers of the world. Mm. So it's sort of the classic rhetorical setup of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. You know, it's interesting because the framework that you just set up is very subtly distinct from the sort of biblical book of Genesis, fall of man, where rather than thinking of it as, oh, we made a fatal mistake. Instead, it's, we have gone too far, but it's not a question of going back or wishing we could go back, but rather an idea of further progress. Well, I think one way of reorienting that is that we need to make the mistake so we can fix it. That is a good point. 
Now let's let's sort of tie this back to the Green Knight because mm-hmm. it's definitely apparent to anyone who's seen the film how those themes tie in. But I'd love to talk a little bit about the the subtler points. I think the Green Knight himself is an obvious example. I think Lowry called it mm-hmm. called him a tree who could hit back, um, no. which is a great turn of phrase. <laughs> but I think there's there's also not just in the presence of nature throughout the film. I think almost every scene has some natural element to it, but also the sort of fearsome overwhelming nature of nature, (laughs) the the sort of overwhelming quality that nature has in this film, both through its cinematography and many of the outdoor scenes, emphasizing how small Gawain is compared to these cliffs and hills of Ireland where they shot, Mm -hmm. but also in the inexplicable that he encounters on this trip. I think the giants are a perfect example where there's just this pack of giants walking through a valley and he tries to speak to them, but they don't seem to understand. And it's only when his fox companion howls at them that there's an actual response from them. And I think that that sort of overwhelming, mysterious, indescribable wonder and horror is very present in the original Arthurian myths as well, where the world is big Mm. and scary and we have no idea why anything happens. (laughs) Did either of you catch the close-up of the worm in the soil? Yeah. That's what really yes. sold. That sold the deal for me. I'm like, this is an eco- ecological movie right here. Worm close up. Absolutely. I don't know if this hits on the social ecological part, but just in terms of the overwhelming nature of nature, uh, <laughs> is when is her name Faye? Are they both the Faye's? Who the couple? Oh, I'm not sure. I don't think they have names. I think they're the Duke and the Lady. Mm-hmm. Got it. So when the lady has this speech yes. or, uh, that's kind of started with this question of why green and why not red, and she talks about the symbolism behind the color green and how it's like really this color that in nature just doesn't give up, mm. you know, and that eventually we'll all be covered over in green after we die. It's. I feel like it really really hits at that point of what you're talking about, Nat, of green is often thought of, I think, especially today as a comforting color. I remember there was this article in 2020 about how, oh, people are painting their walls inside green because they're starving for nature from like being inside so much. And they're trying to bring nature into their house. And what I think is so wonderful about the lady's speech is that she really captures the other side of that coin, like as calming as that color can be and as nature can be, it can also be really horrifying. Yeah. Because as much as we try to pretend like what Peter was saying, that we're kind of in control of it. I don't know if global warming teaches us anything. We are very much not in control of (laughs) nature and like nature will have the last word. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I I love this way of looking at global warming. It's one of my favorite ways of thinking about climate change in general is just that we need to stop thinking about it in terms of like, oh, we need to save the earth because the earth will be here. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. nature will persist, but we as human beings may not be able to survive in the climate that is coming. And that is like, I I don't know, I love that way of looking at it because it really points to how resilient our environment is. Yeah. That was such a good speech. Did you guys like that speech? Absolutely. It was really intense. Oh, I love that speech. <laughs> I let's uh, let's say for our our listeners that we're recording this episode the week that the Oscar nominations were announced, and this film we had chosen to re- to record this film and release it close to the Oscars because we 
all felt that this film deserved yeah. to be nominated for several, and instead it's been nominated for none. Yeah. But I think that that speech really shows why I think Vikander, that and her second performance as Essel, really shows why she deserved to be nominated for either supporting or lead actress, because I think she was phenomenal in this movie and she was doing a lot of difficult work. To do a monologue on screen is so much it's a much bigger ask than to do a monologue on stage Hmm. because on stage, the audience is there to hear monologues. They know that it's coming. Whereas to have an extended speech in film is not part of our usual practice. Mm. And so it's very easy for a monologue to just kill the momentum of a scene. But instead Vic Anders performance really adds so much energy and fatality to that moment. It works phenomenally for me. Peter, what did you think of it? The only thing I think of that speech where, you know, she really drills into them. Why is he green? It reminded me of a, a moment from one of my favorite anime, um, uh, Rob Zephon, <laughs> where uh, the, the, one of the key plot points in the, the initial episode is that there's a secret society of people who have blue blood. They're mostly human, but they have blue blood and psychic abilities and things of that nature. I love that for them. And there's a later moment in the in the series where one of the, the main characters that's sort of a father figure to the main character, they talk about why the uh, cherry blossom trees in this garden that they're looking at, why they have blue petals. And another character who has that sort of like fae otherworldly presence later on and tells him that they used to say that the the trees would turn the color of the blood of the people who are buried underneath them. Mm. Mm. So if these trees have blue petals, then maybe people with blue blood were buried underneath them. Mm. Yeah, that's a very evocative image. Now, since we've touched upon the ladies' monologue and we've touched upon the question of honor, I'd love to switch gears and start talking about the sort of third episode in Gawain's quest, which is where the bisexual element of this film really comes to the fore. As Gawain is traveling, he sort of finds his first sense of respite on this entire journey. His first welcome is in this manner where a lord and a lady are living with a blindfolded woman who never speaks. And they really are the first people to show him kindness since he left Camelot. They take him in, they feed him, they clothe him. They even tell him like, oh, the Green Chapel's not far. We know who you are. We know where you need to be. Don't worry, you're okay. And of course, one of them inexplicably looks exactly like Essel the prostitute who he is. He has been sleeping with back in in the city. So let's let's talk a little bit about that environment, that this new sort of home that he enters that seems quite welcoming, but also alienating at the same time. Absolutely. You know what my first reaction was in the theater. As soon as I saw that there's a, you know, a woman identical to Ethel, I'm like, okay, he's in the underworld. <laughs> Rule number one of being in the underworld is do not eat the food. <laughs> I love that. To me, this was just like the Arthurian version of like, oh, my girlfriend and I saw you from across, across the bar and we thought you were really cute. Like they're out here prowling for a threesome, but like in their- They're weird, swingers. Yeah, yeah, they're swingers and they like have their own little game that they tried to- get going in. But yeah, it's it's an unnerving place. I found it, I think similar to you, Peter, I definitely felt this sense of unease. Like there was something not yeah. quite right about the welcoming nature of it. And yeah. Like, especially given the blindfolded woman. To be honest, I'm, I'm still really befuddled by what those characters really were representing. And that's another reason I would love to see this movie like in the theaters, just 
taking it in on a bigger screen yeah. and getting another chance at understanding it. Yeah. But I love their little game. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk more about the game first, because the, the, the rules of this game are that the Lord is going to hunt and will give Gawain the best of whatever he gets. Mm-hmm. And Gawain, in turn, if he finds or receives anything in the house, he will give it to the Lord. And Gawain sort of questions like, well, what could I possibly get that isn't yours? And the, the Lord's like, oh, you don't know. And it, that that is in the poem. Mm-hmm. Part of the original poem is that Gawain stays several nights there, and each night the lady approaches him and kisses him, and each night he gives a kiss to the Lord but won't say where he got it from. <laughs> and so it is this very flirtatious, very – it's like role play. Yes. Where yeah. they're playing that they don't know what's going on when really they do – And it's so interesting to me that that bisexual eroticism is one of the most remarkable qualities of the original poem, in my opinion. Yeah. And that it is still kind of ribald in the original. Like, it's not just that, oh, well, back then men would kiss each other on the cheek all the time. No, it's still quite sexual in the original text. Yeah. I'm really glad you actually know that because, like, I, I was, I was remembering that from my class on like queerness in medieval literature. I had a lot of anxiety that when he kind of denied the kiss, that the kind of spell of their welcoming nature would be broken or something sure. like that gave me anxiety. But it was interesting that I guess it's different from the original Nat in that like he doesn't give the Lord a kiss right. every time he gets a kiss. He actually tries very hard to pretend like, I didn't get anything at your house, actually. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. the Lord who says, no, I think you did, because he knows the rules of the game. And yeah, well, what he says is, I think I can take it from you. Right. Right. Which, Which on the second a- viewing actually really worked on me. It got me a little hot under the collar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also the two scenes back to back are that the lady comes to Gawain's room in the morning and has this belt that can protect him from the Green Knight. And she says, take it, you know, take it if mm-hmm. you want it. Well, I want to dig into that because well, it's let's, not, let's get into it. In the, in the original fable, it's not a belt. And I'm not sure if in the <laughs> film it isn't not a belt. It's meant to be a girdle, which as a symbol in, you know, the fable and in the film, it's, it's meant to... Well, maybe I should ask the two of you, what do you think it symbolizes, especially <laughs> with the scene prior to the Lord stealing his kiss back right, from right. Gawain? I mean, I think it can only be interpreted sexually, personally. Mm-hmm. A girdle is a piece of underclothing, basically. It's a piece of underwear. And so the idea of taking a girdle from someone could very easily be seen as a metaphor for fucking them, frankly. Mm. But didn't he get the original girdle from his mother? Which gets into some of the psychosexual shit that's been going on <laughs> in this whole movie. I didn't realize that it was originally a girdle and it's supposed to be a girdle. To me, it really just symbolized like the silly superstitions we all use to get ourselves through the (laughs) fact of mortality. Kind of like taking vitamins, you know, like it's like (laughs) probably vitamins don't work, but it does make me feel better to take vitamins. There's a great video essay I watched uh, immediately after I watched The Green Knight. Um, Mm -hmm. I forget forget the creator's name, but we might be able to link it in the show notes. Yeah, if we can find it. And uh, in that video, it was detailed more that uh, what the the girl represented, even in the original fable, is that it's a symbol for sodomy. Interesting. Back hmm. then, sodomy meant more than just you know having anal sex. That meant any sex act that was not meant for procreation hmm. within the bounds of marriage. And there were you know 
huge legal penalties for that. So yeah. the only way to explore that largely is in a story without an author that everyone knows. Yeah, hmm. that's quite interesting. That's really interesting. So the idea that sex for pleasure as a crime, which t- actually ties in quite nicely with what I was going to say, which is the taking of the belts or the girdle. Hmm. You know, in that scene, it is obviously sexual. Uh, there's there's come on it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a challenge to Gawain's honor in a sense where mm-hmm. the lady is, you know, sort of challenging him. Like if you want to take this thing, uh, taking is used as a euphemism for sex in both these scenes, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you want it, take it, take it, take it. And he does. And he comes and she stands up and says, you are no knight." Yeah. I just fully didn't understand yeah. that. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> opaque. It's a very opaque scene. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't pretend to have a full interpretation, but, I think that in this film, Diversion, the girdle also represents a sort of weakness, a sort of cowardice, because it is meant mm-hmm. to defend him against his death right. rather than facing it. And it's it's that way in the original poem, too. The Green Knight chastises him for wearing the girdle. Hmm. Yeah, it's another, it's another Faustian bargain with contradictory conditions. Right, hmm. where if you wear the girdle, you'll live, but at what cost? You know, if you if you... Act immorally, you can succeed, yeah, but only in the most superficial sense. So it's 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 a you know I speaking as somebody who greatly enjoys having sex for non procreative uh, purposes. <laughs> actually, How you dare know, you? Actually, let's get into. I'm issuing a fine straight to horny jail. <laughs> I'm sending you a Venmo request. <laughs> I'd say that this this film reverses that though, because if we think about the the fantasy sequence where Gawain does wear the girdle, doesn't face his death, and goes back. To Camelot, the two times we see him having sex in that sequence is for procreation. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Once with Essel and once with the unnamed princess that he marries. And so, if anything, I would argue that this film reverses that and instead uh, uh, portrays this sort of functionary sex as immoral. Even in this scene with the girdle and the lady, he is having sex with her, essentially, to protect himself from the Green Knight. It has a purpose other than pleasure. Right. Right. So I don't I, I can't say that I have a solid interpretation of this, but I think that the film comp- makes it more complex in a very interesting way. Yeah, it's super interesting and confusing, yeah. but I love it. I love the confusing. <laughs> and the reason I wanted to go back to that girdle scene is because I think that the, the, the choice of words there is very important for understanding the scene between the Lord and Gawain immediately after where, as Peter said, the Lord, before he kisses Gawain, says, I think I can take it. Mm. You know, I think I can take the gift that you can't give me. And he kisses him in this very tender moment, actually. It's mm-hmm. it's a very romantic moment between the two of them. Mm. And Gawain's reaction isn't negative. It's, let me go. I can't play this game anymore. Yeah. What do you two think about the scene between Gawain and the, the, the Lord? Well, I have a personal anecdote that I can relate back to it. We love nothing sure. more than a personal anecdote. Please go ahead. Yeah. A, a moment in my life where I felt my bisexuality at its most heightened. Mm. Uh, before the pandemic, I was a, a camera assistant. I'm not sure if I want to be afterwards, but <laughs> regardless, this was back when I was a camera assistant working on uh, independent films, music videos, uh, and at least one TV show in there. Um, this suddenly became a job interview for Peter. If anybody's looking yeah. to hire. <laughs> I'm unemployed. <laughs> um, so that day on set, it was, you know, a real rough one. We were on stages. It was a hot day and there were multiple crews in the stages, which was just a mess. So we had to contend with that. But, mm. you know, we were working hard, uh, every department, myself included, and we got into like a hallway scene. So, you know, pretty close together with everyone. And I was um, 
positioned close with the uh, production designer, who is a very interesting character. He was like an ex-con, so there's that danger element. Uh, and every day he would wear a kilt to set with his tool belt above it, you know, with his... Oh, my God. Please tell me it wasn't a Utila kilt. Utila kilt. I don't know. He might own one. It's possible. And so since we were all working hard, many of us had worked up a sweat. Mm-hmm. And I had a moment while we were filming. I smelled his musk. <laughs> and it's the first time musk really turned me on. I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> all right. I have to I have to survive this. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, I love that. I felt resonant to this scene with Joel Edgerton as the Lord because I'm just like, wow, what a man. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Edgerton's a total bear in this scene. He's like covered in furs and hair and he's He's out hunting. Yeah. He gets like, when he leaves, he still leaves him this huge, massive boar, which is just like mythically proportioned. (laughs) Yeah. And I I know uh, from interviews, Lowry and Edgerton actually studied old Oliver Reed performances to get Mm. a sense of how the Lord should speak and be present, which borders on a conversation about the accents in this film that I would love to dive into, but we don't have time on the show for, I think. (laughs) Um, Well, Just a little more bisexuality. Yeah, let's stay on topic, which is the bisexuality. (laughs) Gav Patel is sopping wet for so much of this movie. And it, you know, with this, you know, personal anecdote, I wish we could smell the movie. Yeah. No, actually, (laughs) yeah. Sometimes, sometimes when meds smell bad, they smell good. Yes. Allie, do you agree? I agree. I think it should have smell-o-vision for the smell-o-vision. Yeah. Although I do think that time period probably didn't smell amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. So I'll be honest, I I knew so little about this film and kind of really hazily remembered reading The Green Knight in school, but I really didn't know where the bisexuality was going to pop up and how. Mm -hmm. And my only sadness was that Gowan is not into it. Yeah. I kind of was hoping for a little more. Is that how you interpreted it? Sorry. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. It's hard for me to interpret it otherwise just because... He is suddenly rushing off to meet his death. I mean, I can't imagine, even if I'm not that into someone, if the other option is facing death, I would probably kiss them and stay and hang out a little more. So I don't know. I'm curious what you guys thought. That's so interesting because I actually interpreted that the opposite way, which is his running away is a sign of how tempted he is. Mm, That is really interesting. (laughs) We've spoken before on the show about how before you're out, it can be kind of terrifying to feel desire for somebody that feels socially unacceptable. Also, Gawain is on his way to the Green Chapel Mm -hmm. when the Lord stops him for this kiss. And I would say he actually like does take his time in that scene with the Lord. He does stop. He does talk to him. He is like trying to disentangle himself. Yeah. And his reaction to the kiss is very slow, very considered, very hesitant, where he's just unhand me and let us go our ways, I believe is the exact wording. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, how dare you, sir? Yeah, I think I had the same reaction as both of you on both my different viewings. Because on the... That's interesting. Yeah, on the initial viewing in the theater, I, I had the reaction that you had, Ali. But, you know, when I streamed it at home a few days ago, I had the same reaction as you, Nat. Interesting. That's the thing. Maybe it was wishful thinking on my part. <laughs> no, I actually, the more you the more you talk about it, the more it makes sense to me, especially what you said, because you just resurfaced a very triggering memory for me, <laughs> oh, no. which I will now share. Oh. No, it's good. But it kind of exactly what you're talking about, that before you're out, you really can react yeah. 
in a kind of hyperbolic way to desire or anything attraction you might be feeling. And my example that is like seared into my brain is when I was in sixth grade, you know, it was the first time that like grinding was really big at school dances. (laughs) A golden era of human sexuality. (laughs) Yeah. The golden era. I don't know if this happened at your schools, but at my schools, there was this thing would play out where like there was so much embarrassment about girls and guys grinding together, but all the girls would grind in one big line because it was kind of seen as like this way to be risque and also really flirty and sexy, but not too seriously because there's there was kind of the assumption that it was just girls being girls. I mean, I was I was homeschooled, but I've heard tell. Oh God, right. I always forget <laughs> in these stories. I'm like, Nat was homeschooled. You didn't have a family grind line. <laughs> Please. Jesus Christ. <laughs> there's enough there's enough Oedipal imagery in this film without you injecting more. <laughs> <laughs> well, so anyways, I have this distinct memory of watching every single girl in my grade in the grind line, except for me, because I was just so like I could not I, the idea of like touching someone especially the idea of touching a girl like that was just like Mm. I could not do that I could not do that you know and I that I really look back on that as a moment where like the possibility itself was so scary you know yeah well it's sort of like um there's something I I heard once before that the more homophobic a society is the more same-sex affection you're able to display publicly because the idea that it means anything more than like friendship or kinship is just so outside of everybody else's mind right? that you're able to get away with more. right? But as like homosexuality and bisexuality become more accepted, then suddenly you get this sort of bluster about it where it's like, blah, blah, blah. So that's, that's very interesting that it's like the, the possibility of getting turned on is what makes you distance yourself from it. Whereas if, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It was, but I don't know. I really, I, I really see your reading now, not of that moment, because it is a very slow kiss, even though he then runs off to be beheaded. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'd rather be beheaded than uh, experience queer desire. <laughs> uh, now let's talk about the ending, because we've, we've touched on it before. And the biggest departure from the original poem, I would say, is at the end, both in that imagined sequence that we've touched on several times and in the way that the film itself ends, Mm -hmm. which is that as in the poem, Gawain removes the belt, removes the girdle, removes his protection and is ready to face his death in actuality. Mm -hmm. And in the film, the Green Knight is very kind to him in that moment and says, well done, my brave knight. Now off with your head. You know, he's almost like congratulating him. Like you have passed the test at last. Yeah. And I think that ending is actually in many ways superior to the original ending of the poem, which is that the whole thing is revealed to have been basically a prank where the Lord is the green knight. He unve- he removes his armor and reveals that, you know, he was in league with Morgan Le Fay and the whole thing was a prank to test the knights of King Arthur's court. And, oh, wouldn't you know it? You passed the test. Good for you. Which robs it of so much of its meaning to me. And maybe it plays differently to a medieval audience, but to me, Ending the way it does really clarifies what the film is about, which is not whether or not Gawain will survive, but whether or not he can face his mortality. Yeah. What did you two think of the ending? I found the ending really challenging because I really wanted Gawain to win. Yeah. You know, cheat death. 
outsmart the green knight. I really actually, at first when he ran away, I didn't, and I didn't realize it was like a vision. It's very well done. It's really well done. And when I didn't realize it was a vision, I was like, yes, this is what we need. (laughs) Radical cowardice, radical cowardice. Because I just felt like, I, I almost felt like everyone's telling him it's a game. And I almost felt like there was this like in my reading of it, as it kind of being a send up of chivalric masculinity, I almost felt like everyone knows that he's just supposed to leave town for a few weeks, say he met the Green Knight, <laughs> come back boasting. Like no one actually expects him to hunt this guy down and get his head chopped off. But he's so young and naive that he's taking this also literally. So I loved when he escaped. And then all of a sudden when it snapped and it was a vision, I was like, oh, wow. And I was still really moved by it. But I, it was, I found it really challenging because I found it challenging that it was kind of a story about facing mortality, especially because he's so young. And I watched it with my boyfriend who said he really felt like the purpose of that vision was to show that more life doesn't actually mean a better life. And that like it was better for him to die with courage in that moment than to live the rest of his life. Hiding from death. With this secret shame, hiding from death with this girdle all his life, you know. This cum-stained rag. This cum-stained <laughs> protection rag, yeah. And it's funny, I have a different interpretation a bit of the vision itself. Um, we can talk about that a little later. W- what was your interpretation? Well, my interpretation was really not that, I didn't, I think you can see it as, yes, this is how his life would play out if he lived with cowardice. But I also think you can kind of just read it as like, this was the best case scenario Mm. in a way for a man of that time. You know, he loves this woman or he's into this woman who's a prostitute. And because of that and the customs, he wouldn't have been able to, you know, make her his queen. Maybe he would become king. And the best case scenario of that is, you know, Maybe he leads some wars. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe there's yeah. this terrible death and destruction because I really was thinking about the scene with all the men yeah. who were dead on that field with no trees. And in the fantasy sequence, his own son dies. Right. And his own son dies in war. But that would be considered, you know, like a really noble, heroic death. And so I couldn't help but feel like a little bit of part of that vision was him kind of ultimately resigning. Mm. You know, fuck it, I will be beheaded (laughs) because what waits for me, honor and knightliness and potentially being a king is actually like, kind of tragic in itself. That's really interesting. Those those were my thoughts. I hadn't considered that interpretation before, but I think the two actually can coexist. Definitely. The, the sequence is honor without courage. Mm-hmm. Really. Yes. It's the appearance of virtue without virtue. Yeah. Peter, what, what, how do you feel about the ending, both the imagined sequence and the way the film ends so abruptly? I have three thoughts that I want to explore, so keep that in mind. Uh, All right, I'll keep a tally. (laughs) The first thought is that I believe this ending is telegraphed earlier in the film when the scavengers tie him up and leave him for dead. And we as the audience see him die, decay, become a corpse and a skeleton. Yeah, which is a great shot. And then the camera turns around (laughs) once more and he's alive again and he has to fight for his life and he cuts his hand uh, freeing himself. I think that telegraph the ending in a way because we, yes. could, we would have to dig into what mm. that initial have it both ways uh, end of Gawain's story so to speak would have been 
or what it meant. Well, what's interesting there is that uh, the death comes from a lack of courage, you know, if he just lets yeah. himself starve to death. A lack of drive. Right, if he just gives up in that moment. Yeah, but continue. You had two other points. Uh, the second point is that this film does something that I've usually only seen in East Asian cinema with films like Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, like Parasite from Bong Joon-ho, where we have the ending both ways, where we have, you know, the good happy ending, maybe, Mm. with, Mm. you know, some mixed feelings, and then we snap out of it and we see the real ending, whether that's sad or not. The comparison to Parasite is perfect. That's absolutely on the money. Although the last time... Since the last time I spoke to you about this this notion that I thought of a Western film that does this too. Oh, really? Which one? La La Land. <laughs> mm. Oh right. my god! My yeah. favorite that movie, actually made the me movie cry. that I enjoy <laughs> so much and think so highly of. <laughs> Sorry, Ali, you, you just said that not. you really liked it, didn't you? And I talked over you. I love that film. I didn't really like it, but I did find that. Ugh. double ending at the end a bit of a gut punch yeah, yeah. Oh, god i could spend right? two hours talking about that uh um, they always are i i hate that movie um but yes the ending is the good is the one good part of that movie in my opinion <laughs> mm-hmm. but was with peter there was a third point what were you yes you had a third point uh, the third point is one that i can speak about but i want to hear from the both of you first and this sort of rounds back but since we're at the end of the story and we've seen what happens off with your head. What does the axe represent mm. in this film? Hmm. It might have its own, you know, meaning in the fable, but what I want to dig into is sure. if this is an ecological storytelling from David Lowry and the filmmakers, what does the axe mean? What does it represent? Ali, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I'll go first and just say I really don't know beyond to me, it really represented just like immense power. Mm-hmm. I think because of the way it's handled and treated and early on, it's kind of laid down so dramatically by the Green Knight when it's like repackaged and then unpackaged, it's done so carefully. And yeah. the way that he gives it back also feels like this huge moment. And of course, the fact that that's the tool that would potentially be used to kill him, to me, it just felt like this really impossibly powerful and otherworldly weapon. I, I'll build on that because I agree. And I think that the the axe is an extension of the Green Knight himself, which is an extension of nature itself. Yeah, yeah. And so if the Green Knight is a tree who can punch back, the axe sort of represents that duality of nature because, you know, one, one thing that's very notable about the axe is that anytime it is set down, moss grows. Yes. Oh. Yeah. You know, when it's kept in a chest for an entire year and then the chest opens, it's full of moss. Yeah. It's spilling over. And so the axe gives life as well as takes it. It is a tool as well as a weapon. And so I think the, the power that it holds is that dual power of nature, that green rot and green growth. Yeah. And so I think that it, it really represents the films like reverence for the destructive capability of nature in addition to its ability to give life. Now, Peter, what was, what was, your, what was the secret answer you had written on your card? <laughs> <laughs> it actually synthesizes both of your points. I believe, and this I've thought from the first viewing, the axe is an allegory for petroleum, for mm. using oil and fossil fuels for, you know, rapid development of industrial society. That's interesting. Mm. Because that comes with a price, the same kind of price that the Green Knight lays out for Gawain. 
strike me and I will return the same blow in one year. Right. Burn this coal and your grandchildren will suffocate. Yeah. Yes. We have extracted so many fossil fuels out of the earth right. that now we are reaching the point where earth itself is returning the same blow on us in, you know, the return of carbon in the air and the effects that that has on our uh, you know, natural environment. And that makes a great deal of sense because an axe is a tool to cut down a tree. Yeah. And it's, it still classically falls into, you know, the hero's journey, the, the gift of the boon. Sure. This axe itself is a boon. And in, in a storytelling of the modern world, petroleum was a boon that we took. Sure. That had hidden sure, yeah. contradictory uh, conditions behind it because, mm. yeah. you know, we can use this for a benefit and we're going to pay a price. Yeah. And in that interpretation, the ambiguous ending makes even more sense because we don't know the answer to the question yet. Yeah. Will humanity survive? Will Gawain survive? Yeah. Yes. And also drawing back to the initial Gawain's commitment to this game is that, you know, the elderly, King Arthur, he sees and he says, do you understand this game? Yeah. So who was the King Arthur among the many millions and billions of people on Earth who have been saying for decades, do you know what you're yeah. doing? Do we understand what we've done? Yeah. It was Al Gore. It was definitely <laughs> Al Gore. <laughs> yeah, we've made the childish we've made the childish decision to chop the head all the way off. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, hundred percent. Oh my god, I'm obsessed with this reading of it. <laughs> god, I'm obsessed with this movie. Yeah. I was just thinking the other day about how we need more climate movies. I yeah. I, I actually didn't hate um don't look up. I I know it got a lot of hate. I didn't like think it was incredible, yeah. but I did enjoy it. I haven't seen it, so I can't judge. But I but I but when after I was done watching it, I was like, I do think we just need more climate movies in general. And but my favorite one, I think I love First Reformed, and I really love the idea of seeing this movie as kind of like a climate allegory. I think that's really cool. Absolutely. And I love that this film is so ambiguous and ambivalent. Yeah. Because I think that that's really necessary for climate. I, I can say for myself, I'm working on a sci-fi script where climate is somewhat present, uh, at the very least in the human relation to nature. And my goal with it is to present a positive future and a negative future, mm. you know, sort of a cyberpunk and a solar punk, which I also think is really necessary. I think as necessary as it is to emphasize the dangers that we are facing, it's also necessary to make people feel that there is an alternative so that we don't slip into ecological nihilism. We can't be doomers. Yeah. That's for boomers. That's for zoomers. <laughs> <laughs> um, now that we've reached the end of the film, I think we should mm-hmm. reach the end of this podcast as well. Oh, uh, so sad. Does anyone have any lingering thoughts that we want to just shout out here at the end? Peter, I know you had a few points prepared. I hope we were able to hit most of them. Are there any left that you'd like to touch on before we play our uh, our traditional game of Mary Fuck Kill? Yeah, the, the, there's a moment I wanted to note when they're in the, the castle mm-hmm. and the lady says she'll, she'll paint him a portrait. Yes. But... Or I don't remember what she says actually, but what she does is she she takes a photo of him using uh, a uh, you know, camera obscura. Right. It's it's a it's a pinhole camera, and inside mm. that room is a you know a photochemical sheen that can capture his image just from the light that you know, casts yeah. from his room into the room that is capturing the image. It's a giant camera, and when she pulls it out uh, and shows it to me, he says, 
what a queer painting. Yeah. Yeah. That I love that scene, especially because it's contrasted with an earlier scene of someone painting his portrait and him posing for it and it being such a construct. Right. Whereas that moment feels like it captures something truthful about him the way photography really can. Mm. Yeah. So that's I'm glad you called that out. Uh, Allie, any final thoughts? My final thought is I think Dev Patel was just robbed yeah. by the Oscars because I really feel like his performance was just beautiful. I mean, mm. he portrayed so many. I, I just feel like, you know, in a lot of the reviews, they talk about how he's kind of an asshole or or, or like someone. I think Peter said use the word cad. Right. Which I think is true, but I think he kind of plays the most sympathetic version of that person Yeah, that really shows the full humanity of what it means. And he's so vulnerable and so really open, I think, throughout the whole movie, really kind of wanting this journey to work out, wanting this. I don't know. I just really feel like his performance was amazing and it's fucked up not to nominate him for an Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, what's funny. Not only do I agree that was, that's very closely related to my final thought as well, which is, the choice to cast Dev Patel in this movie is simultaneously so obvious and not obvious at all. Obviously, we haven't touched on the fact that this film was cast without consideration of race because it's a fantasy film. As Lowry said, it's not historical epic. So why bother hewing to a particular idea about the race of these people? Yeah. But the the main reason that Dev Patel was chosen is for that likability. Lowry himself said Uh, I knew that by casting Dev as the character, the audience would be completely invested in his journey Mm -hmm. towards that ultimate culmination. Mm -hmm. And that actually reminded me of something that uh, Robert Altman said about casting Warren Beatty in his film McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is that he was asked by Dick Cavett on his show about the question of whether to use professional celebrity actors or unknown actors, because Mm. Altman did both. And Altman in his answer used Beatty as an example by saying, so for McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I needed to set up that this man was a success before slowly breaking him down. And by casting Warren Beatty, I didn't have to do any work to convince the audience that he was successful because he was Warren fucking Beatty. And I think in a similar sense, Dev Patel is instantly lovable. I don't think that there's a more likable leading man working in Hollywood at the moment. You know, he has just this wonderful warmth and vulnerability to everything that he does, even when he's playing a character like this, who's a bit of an asshole. Yeah. In several interviews, Lowry talked about, you know, people wanting him to rewrite the script to make Gawain more likable, more sympathetic. And he said, I don't need to because I'm casting Dev Patel. And so the audience is just immediately going to be on his side. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he nailed it. It's super, super true. Yeah. I I think it worked out great. Our boy was robbed. Our boy was robbed. I know. The the Oscars are bullshit, but this year particularly so. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I think for the final game, shall we play a game? Yes. A game of sex and violence, just like (laughs) the rest of this movie. Yeah. It is time to play Mary Fuck Kill. I don't know where the the two of you are at. I think that the natural choice is, of course, Gawain, the Lord. The Lord. And the lady. The lady. Right? Yes. Peter, how do you feel about that? I disagree. Really? (gasps) I I think... I think that it's very important to include the Green Knight in this <laughs> in this Faustian bargain that is Mary Fuck Kill. Fair because enough. Because I think there's a right and wrong answer. Okay. Let's do the Green Knight, the Lord, 
and Gowan. How does that sound? Uh, no, because I'm gonna marry. I'm, I'm either gonna fuck or marry Gowan if he's in there because it's Dev Patel. <laughs> How about the Green Knight, the Lord and the Lady? I feel like that's an actually cool. that'll be a very revealing yeah, choice. It's a tough choice. I mean, because we all want to fuck Gawain. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Jesus <laughs> Christ, <laughs> he's dripping wet. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Um. Okay, Nat, Peter, uh, I could go first, actually. Let me think for a second. Yeah, um, Wh- whoever feels the spirit move them. It'll be like a Quaker service. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I think I gotta marry the Green Knight, because you just know that's going to be a cool life. You know, what are we doing? What are we... You know what's so funny? I, I was going to say the same thing. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, what are your other that's two? That's okay, yeah. I would fuck the Lord, because I love his vibe of just, I'm going to bring you food, and <laughs> then we should kiss. <laughs> I'm going to kill the lady because I think she was really rude to Gowan, uh, <laughs> calling him not a knight after she seduced him. Interesting. That's my final answer. Yeah. Peter? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm tempted to do the same with uh, Mary the Green Knight. Maybe, maybe I'll risk it and fuck the Green Knight. And then we'll <laughs> fuck again one year later. Uh, yeah, we'll switch positions. Uh, and that means that I get to kill the Lord and marry the lady. Interesting. Very sweet. Very nice. Yeah. I'm really torn because I, Allie, when you started talking, I was going to say the exact same thing as you, but now I'm not so sure. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to say marry the green knight because who the fuck knows what happens next, but I'm ready to find out. Exactly. I think I would actually fuck the lady because like, talk about a Faustian bargain. Like, yes, I will be disrespected afterwards, but... (laughs) It's Alicia Vikander yeah, in period fair. dress. <laughs> and then by default, I would kill the Lord. I considered For marrying sure. the Lord, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I, 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 I don't think I don't think he would be too hurt if I killed him. You know, I think he would understand the rules of the game. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, as sexy as a dirty man can smell, he's a dirty man. <laughs> 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 well. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. It was an absolute delight to have you here. Yes, thank you. So fun. Yeah, glad to be here. And thank you all for listening. Do you want to do the credits now, Nat? Or? Yeah, yeah. I was I was downshifting into the credits. Got it. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> if you enjoy the show, please consider liking it or subscribing, depending on what your chosen platform allows you to do. Definitely feel free to share it with your friends. That really helps us out. Word of mouth is pretty much our only source of publicity at the moment. We promise that every week we don't talk about how wet Dev Patel is in various roles. Before we go, my only regret compared to uh, listening to the podcast rather than guessing is I don't get to hear the theme music. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) Oh, that's really sweet. Well, speaking of theme music... Thank you to Billy Libby for the theme music and to Abby Austin for our wonderful, beautiful podcast art. Yes, you can find both their social media handles in the episode description, along with Allie and I's and Peter's. And the show's Twitter handle is at Snails Oysters. Feel free to tweet at us any old time if you have an idea for an episode or you just disagree with one of our takes or you think that we should, we're all wrong and everyone should marry the Lord <laughs> and <laughs> so forth. Also, Snails and Oysters is on Patreon. If you like the show and Ooh. have the means, we would be very honored to have your support. I believe by the time this episode comes out, our second bonus episode on a room with a view should be out so keep it keep your head in a swivel for that yeah and come back anytime peter especially if the film is both climate related or ecological and bisexual yes <laughs> and finally thank you for being, for being a, a bi-ally. bi-ally. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>